Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. My name is John, and uh, I am joined, as always, by JP. How's it going? Hey, JP. It's going really good today. I just moved into my new place, so you can probably hear the echo of the empty house and boxes around me. But it's been a good experience, and uh, I'm excited to be here today and talk through this stuff. Nice. That is super exciting. I, too, am in a different recording location. I'm in my sister's home office, so the echo is probably probably pretty bad as well, which, eh, you know, it's, not, it's neither here nor there, but it it doesn't seem like either of, us, either of us have those cool, like, foam wavy pad things set up anywhere. Maybe. Yeah, the, the isolation <laughs> pads and all that craziness. I mean, it, it's, you know, at least we have microphones now. It's one better than things used to be on, like, the AirPod <laughs> headphones and stuff. <laughs> The Lost Forever Season 1. <laughs> you know, I'm super excited this week. We have a new book. Uh, we are walking through extreme programming. So we're just starting in Chapter 1 today. It's a book by Kent Beck. This is a book all about, I mean, overall, I don't even know where to start in introducing this book. <laughs> Let's start by initial reactions of what you thought this was going to be when you saw the title Extreme Programming. <laughs> oh, like what I thought it was going to be. That's a I like that approach. Yeah. So initially, I always thought this book was about like pushing yourself and your code really far and pushing yourself for more productivity and like a tool book and a toolkit for like extreme productivity and continuous iteration. But I really thought it was going to be like Pomodoro and Scrum and points. And I don't know, for some reason, I was thinking like some like really intense agile is what I thought extreme programming was going to be. And even in chapter one, I feel like that's probably not going to be it. What did you think it was going to be about? That's so funny because I was literally just about to say my initial impression of just just reading the title Extreme Programming. I thought it was going to be like agile on steroids. Yeah. And it's interesting because we I feel like we've read maybe two or three of the books on this podcast that have referenced XP somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think even domain driven design references it did, XP. Yeah, for sure. And which is crazy because it's like it felt like more often than not we would see the abbreviation XP in text and and mm-hmm. never the full thing of extreme programming. So it seems like it's potentially like a common thing, maybe in like the early 2000s. But I just thought this was going to be exactly like you said, you know, how to estimate really well and be like really super efficient with your points and how to do agile on, on steroids. And, you know, maybe, maybe it will end up being like that. But based on this first chapter of what we're about to dive into, it didn't necessarily seem like that was the the uh the spirit of extreme programming yeah i and i think i was really excited to get into this idea of like getting into this insane agile and scrum and planning but even after just reading chapter one it was almost like i was ready for this intense journey and it's like it feels like a little bit more like touchy feely and human than I ever expected, especially like programming in the title and extreme in the title. Like I did not expect it to feel this way. So I actually, I've got a, a pretty big block quote here, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase and quote this. So what is XP? This is a summary of the first introduction of the chapter, like setting up what is XP. Pretty much this episode, we're going to talk through what is extreme programming from Kent Beck's perspective and kind of set up what we're going to be going through in these next few episodes. So here's a quote from Kent Beck, quote, extreme programming is about social change. It's about letting go of old habits and patterns that were adaptive in the past, but now get in the way of doing our best work. It's about giving up the defensiveness that protects us, but interfere with our productivity. 
it may leave us feeling exposed. And then it continues on. It's about the process of becoming more of our best selves and in the process, our best as developers. It's about writing great code, end quote. And so it's interesting to me how touchy-feely that is and how just undefined that is. Like, it's about being better and social change. Like, what? Is this guy like a hardcore programmer, ninja, 10x hacker or not? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it goes without saying that this is a book by Kent Beck. I'm not sure if we introduced the author, but he is a big a big name in the programming community. So it's not just some random hippie that is like, right. we should all love each other and, and love our team and be extremely touchy-feely with our emotions and, and also our code, which is like sort of what it sounded like in some texts where like it talks about, you know, being really communicative and and all this stuff, which you should be. But it, it also felt like there was like an, an emotional side to it, which I thought was interesting. For sure. And to me, it's interesting because, I mean, Kent Beck from a career and output standpoint is just so productive and so successful as a, as a thought influencer and as a developer in our world. I mean, he has written or contributed to some of the most influential books in our entire industry. And I'm so surprised. I feel like when I think of someone like a Kent Beck, I would feel like he would be not about the human side or the touchy feely, but it would all be about, you know, pro productivity and output and what you're doing and being objective. And, and there may be some of those things in this book, and I'm sure it's a balance and a spectrum, but the introduction is just very much a human approach to developing things. And it's interesting to see how much success he's had with this more kind of touchy feely approach. And my hunch is to be like, oh, well, this is bullshit because I bet he was different before he got there. And now that he's there, like he has the bandwidth and time and energy and money to be this way. Like he has the bandwidth and time and energy to be like, oh, you know, I can't give you a firm deadline. There's no such thing as a firm deadline. It almost reminds me of the book from Basecamp. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. And it's like, well, this is easy for you guys to say, like you have a hundred million dollar company and you have a house in the Malibu Hills. It's easy for you to be like, oh, well, you don't have to pressure yourself or feel pressure about output. And I, so I'm, I'm kind of, that's my like devil's advocate inside of me. It's like, I wonder if this is coming from a place of already found success or if this book was written before his success and then this was his playbook. Because I feel like there's this thing in the business world that happens. It's like people get there and then they write this playbook, which is how they wish they got to where they were. But it's not really how they got there. But I think that it's mostly just my own like cynicism and skepticism coming in. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's really, really funny because I am totally on the same page with you on that. And I, I forget when this book was written originally. I think the first edition was written in the 90s. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, definitely the thought crossed my mind. I was like trying to put myself in the shoes of a developer, uh, uh, you know, when this book came out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is this snake oil? Like, is this bullshit where it's it's like, <laughs> it's one of those things that exactly what you said, where like, I'm going to sell you on, on this journey that um, I potentially didn't really do myself, but like, would be nice if I had. And I'm going to sell, sell this like snake oil bullshit on like how development teams should practice extreme programming because like you know no you know at the time there were no like best practices i'm sure mm -hmm. and so it was like the perfect opportunity to say that hey these are the best practices for teams and this is how you should code and this is how you should run your teams 
And so like a little bit of that did cross my mind. That being said, it it doesn't it doesn't seem like that's the case. Yeah, and um, I'm sure the that it's re- not. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like if XP was bullshit, it wouldn't be this so respected and so often quoted book. Like I feel like in the top 10 programming books that are on Amazon in our industry, most of them quote XP or reference XP, extreme programming in some way. And so like, obviously there's something to it, even if some of the content is somewhat aspirational versus practical. I think that's okay sometimes to be like, this is my ideal. This is where I want to be. I think that's a good practice to think about what can this be versus what it is now. And you know, it's one of those things, shoot for the moon, hit the stars. It's never a bad thing to think through your workflows and think of ways you can be better. So let's continue through what Kent Beck says XP is. I loved this quote that he said, extreme programming is my attempt to reconcile humanity and productivity in my own practice of software development, unquote. I feel like I've struggled with this a lot, feeling like my human self and my programmer self are at odds with each other. Like I have to like sometimes force my human self with Pomodoro timers and just way too much coffee and pushing the weekends. And like, I feel like sometimes my job does make me feel like I lose grasp of my humanity, even just being in screens all the time and not having boundaries with work. And so I wonder what he means by reconciling humanity and productivity. I'm interested to pull that thread that he's going to lay out for us more of just finding that balance between output and mental health and, you know, doing the hard work and pushing through, but also like keeping humanity on that. Do you ever find like you, you struggle with that balancing your just life as a human and your technical life or your work life and those different things? Totally. Yeah. It's a super interesting thought. I remember reading a Reddit thread. Maybe I can pull it up and we can put it in the show notes. But there was this interesting comment that a Redditor had mentioned. And I was like, wow, I'm totally guilty of that. And it's that very early in our careers, or maybe not even early in our careers, as software engineers, we tend to always think of things as problems. And a lot of that can carry outside of the context of solving a problem for work. So let's say you're building a house for your dog. And the way that we think of things is like the same way that we would approach, I don't know, for you and I, like building a Rails app. It would be like, okay, so like what is the model that we're going to do and how are we going to like route things correctly? Like you see everything as a problem that needs to be solved. That needs to be solved and or like a technical problem. And I was like, yeah, I kind of do see myself like trying to apply, you know, this like problem solution paradigm in a lot of things in my life. And I was like, maybe that's maybe not healthy because you're always on you know you're always like Hmm. it's almost like you're never able to turn your brain off and relax and like enjoy life because you think of everything as like a as a problem that needs to (laughs) like a technical problem that needs to be solved it's it's not like the alternative like for i feel like that is literally how i live my life from dawn to dusk that like everything is a technical problem that needs to be iterated with a hypothesis and solved like i live that way very much so so is there any alternative or just like living with things unsolved and not treating them as problems i I'm, i don't understand the frame of mind change okay so maybe the building a house for uh Finn's your dog your dog's name yeah, maybe Flynn maybe, is my dog's name yeah, yeah maybe maybe building a house for fit isn't a good good example but what about for example um brewing the perfect cup of coffee you know like okay (laughs) that might be instead of thinking of that as like a problem that needs to be solved it could be like the art 
of brewing the perfect cup of coffee, mm. right? It's it's less it's it's less of like uh here are the steps that I need to do to execute on this problem and and here's how I know that the problem is solved. The end output is that I have this wonderfully brewed cup of coffee. Whereas right. like if you take it for the artisanal value of uh, of the process and and, it, and and enjoying every step of the way and not thinking of it as like another ticket that needs to be crushed, you know? Yeah. It's really funny you say that specifically the coffee example because like I use this app called Filturu and you like put all of your inputs in and it gives you specific timers for what to pour when and like I have very much treated it as this technical problem to be solved and <laughs> I like the frame of mind that like Maybe it's just a process or a practice, or maybe it's just something you do. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with someone recently, and it was the idea of, I feel like there's no hobbies anymore. Everybody only has a side hustle. So it's like, oh, you're really good at you know, making leather bags. Like, oh, those leather bags has to be a business. Like, get your Etsy shop going. Like, do all these different things. Like, you have to turn into business. Like, isn't it okay to just kind of like have a hobby? Like, maybe something isn't a side hustle. I feel like millennials feel like we can't have hobbies. And so I think in the same way, like not everything is a technical problem to be solved. Not everything has to be a business. I like this. I like this idea of just like some things just are like, and it's not necessarily that where you have to put your mind in. So yeah, that's like on that subject of trying to balance humanity and output and productivity. And it's not that we don't want to work hard and we don't want to do great work, but I think sometimes it, like human brains don't compute well with computers. Like they don't interact very well. It's like software and hardware in the most literal sense, wetware they call it. And I think that there's, there's just this big, th those two things clash. And so I'm interested to hear how this book kind of helps us there. There was this other quote that I, it really like struck me. I feel like out of the whole first chapter, this is what stood out the most. It was this whole big section about constraints, whether they be time or money or technical constraints, but it's specifically talking about time constraints. And this is the quote from Kent Beck. He says, quote, how would you do it if you had enough time? Fussing about the constraints distracts you from your goals. Your clear self does your best work, no matter what the constraints are, end quote. Man, and I feel like that's... <laughs> That's always the thing I come back to. Like in the, our Slack, we have one of those stand-up apps that like asks us our stand-ups for the day. And one of the last questions on the stand-ups is, do you have any blockers? And almost every single day I write in there time or put like a clock emoji or just, it's always time, 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 time. And it's such a distraction for me and an excuse and a crutch that I'm just always like, oh, I don't have enough time between projects to do this this way or to get this out the door and, or to do it in the quality that I want or to get the, all the test coverage. And I like this framework that like your honest and true self does your best work no matter what your constraints are. And I love that idea, but it also like just sounds impossible. Like, <laughs> I, like the, I like the frame of mind and change that like I'm going to do my best work no matter what. what. What do you feel like he means by this, JP? Like what does he mean that you do your best work no matter the constraints? Is it like literally that I take 20 hours to do something because I want to even though I should take two or like is it a frame of mind thing? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. And and hopefully all of these sort of vague bullet points will be discussed in future chapters of the book and I'm sure they will be. Yeah. But there has to be like a caveat because like how would you do it if you had enough time? There has to be the caveat of like just do it as if you had enough time but but instead ship an MVP. But then that's kind of like not doing it how you would do it if you had enough time. So I don't I don't know. I'm I'm a little uh I'm a little at loss for words on this one because it seems like impossible. I don't know. Yeah. But I think the spirit of this quote is more that like 
when you're pressed for time, you sort of rush things and you're not doing mm-hmm. things as you would if you did have enough time. For sure. And so I think the spirit of this is like quality control. Like, like you know, you have to check yourself and sort of be like, hey, well, am I rushing this? Am I, am, am I giving, is this like the work that I would, you know, yeah. that I would show at the end of the day of like having way too much time? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because he was saying the initial tenets of the book is communication, feedback, simplicity, courage, and respect. And I feel like that word courage really stands out to me. And I'm wondering if this whole subject of not having enough time and fussing about constraints, I feel like it's going to come down to just doing it the way you want it to be done and be having the courage to be like, nope, I can't do this in two hours. It's going to take 20. Like if you're, if you're hiring me to be the expert in the room, this is how it's getting done. And I think that's my hunch of where this is going to go. Cause of other things I've read from Kent Beck and some of like his approach to things. Another like bullet point in this chapter was all about, you know, deadlines aren't my problem. That's, that's your problem, the client's problem. And like, I get it, but like sometimes there really are deadlines and constraints. But I think overall, the takeaway I'm going to take from this is like, I'm going to stop using time as an excuse. Like it is a constraint and it is a real world constraint that I have that I don't have enough time, but it's a poor excuse for bad code coverage, for bad test coverage. It's a poor excuse for bad quality code. And so I think if I'm going to pick an excuse, I should pick I have opted into too many priorities. Like I've said yes to too many things because the the reality is my time is fixed, but the things that I say yes to is not fixed. Like I can change that number. And so maybe it's, maybe it's about understanding the reality of your constraints and adjusting work within it. All, All to say is I really like this idea of like, how would you do it if you have enough time? And it reminds me of a question that I've been asked a couple of times. It's a game me and my brothers play, and we've done this for like years. And the question we ask is, how much money is enough money? Like, what is enough for you? And I remember like when we were in high school, it was like, oh, $100,000. That's like, <laughs> that's all I would need. And it's funny because like questions have definitely scaled up. And it was always funny because like I answered less than my two older brothers, like every time through the years. that Because I was always like, I feel like enough money is like, maybe $6 million. Like that's enough. I could just like, I could do whatever I want pretty much. I wouldn't, I would still have to work at some point in my life, but like that's enough. And it's like, it's an interesting idea to think about like what's enough time for something. Cause there's a number that is enough for a reason for like, there's enough there. It's just, I feel like it's a good thought experiment to think through like, Oh, I don't have enough time. I have enough time. Like, but what is enough? Like, is there ever enough or are you always going to have time constraints? Like even a developer at Apple or Facebook still has time constraints and they have the biggest teams you could imagine and the most support you could imagine. And you still have constraints. Yeah, I think it's um, it's just impossible to, to, not, to not ever have constraints unless you're working on a project that has no stakeholders and no customers or something. I don't know. But then it's a hobby. Yeah, and that's that, great. Right, it's right, a right, practice right. and a hobby. And I think that's great to have something like that. But ultimately, like if it's in the business world and there's a customer, like there is some kind of constraint on it. There has to be. Yeah. I um, think I think there has to be a a sort of caveat to this because and I'm sure that I'm sure the book will eventually get into the idea of like how can we cut scope but still deliver to our customers like how can we do this given such time constraints in such a way that we're still providing a quality product Mm -hmm. that is fulfilling a customer need without compromising on 
on giving them any value because right. like i think it's really easy to want to do things that like improve developer experience or or you may sometimes you make decisions because it's like as a developer it makes my life easier like uh, you know maybe we don't really need to write tests or like you know maybe we can we can you know um maybe we could cut some corners in the code but i think the point of of this is like would you be making those same decisions if you had enough time like would you would you be skipping out on the tests or would mm. you be um making these compromises probably not i don't know i don't know where i was going with that but you probably wouldn't be like you know cutting out value for the customer if you had enough time to so yeah. I think there's a lot to say there eventually, but I'm not, I'm yeah. not, I'm not sure where that, where that's going. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm just really excited for that section. I feel like, cause I always feel like I have so many constraints and I feel like part of it is cause I work with such early stage startups and there, there's always a lack of time, always a lack of money. And it's just always like, man, I wish I could do more here. And so I love this idea of how would you do if you had enough time? And I think too, you were kind of going down the, there was a bullet point in this chapter talking about what XP is. And it was like XP prioritizes features according to business need. So that if deadlines are missed, we can still hit the deadline, but you're just not getting the other nice to have features. It's all about like prioritizing what is core to the business and understanding that. But like that's, that's hard because so many people I work with don't even know what is core to their business. Like the business people are like, I just want to get this app up and running and we don't even know yet which features are core yet. Cause like either it's not in the world or the user base is small or whatever those things look like. And so some of these are really difficult questions and it's kind of, it's interesting because like in the security world, there's always this idea of no matter how good your security is, the flaw is always the humans in the chain. Like you have these companies that have insane two-factor auth and they change their passwords every week, but then someone gets a phone call that's like, hey, this is Greg and IT. Can I get your uh, master password for that? And then they give it up because like humans are often just what's difficult and the problem in any system. And I feel like a lot of this book is this idea of accepting that humans are very different than computers and accepting that we need different systems and embracing different constraints within that system, which is, I guess, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think humanity is has a lot to do with this book. And I think that's an interesting point you bring up about what are the business needs? Oftentimes people don't know. And I think I think it's interesting because now that I work for Open Door, um, I've had similar conversations of like what needs to be prioritized with my boss. And in our one-on-ones, we've had conversations about like, um, well, you know, design wants to do this, but engineering wants to do this and our PM mm -hmm. wants to do this. And it's like, what do you prioritize kind of a thing? And it's interesting because sometimes these decisions can be like pretty serious, you know, like if you don't prioritize the right things, you know, it might be sink or swim. Like, uh huh, absolutely. You know, metrics can be can can tank off of one decision because you know someone wanted to do this or that. Not saying that that's happened, but that's sort of the mindset that you need to be thinking of when you're like prioritizing things. And it's interesting because without you know clear problem statements and and without like a clear plan of execution of like what is going to be tackled next, it's very hard to know what you should be working on. And I feel like we had a lot of those shortcomings with WizTutor mm -hmm. back in the day because we didn't really know what the business needs were. Was it that we wanted to to scale all of our all of our tutors and that we wanted to, you know, provide a kick-ass experience for our tutors? Or conversely, was it that we wanted to like be the best 
you know, customer service driven app right. for parents to find, you know, tutors yeah. for their students. And we didn't really have clear goals, I think. And so a lot of the times we'd be planning out features or planning out ways to improve on things. But at the end of the day, we didn't really have a clear sense of what goal we would be hitting. Like what was the purpose mm-hmm. of of these like new features or bug fixes other than the fact that we knew that these you know, feature like that, that we needed to make some improvements in like XYZ categories. So it's like one thing to be like, oh, we should improve this. We should improve in app messaging. We should improve how easy it is for tutors to communicate with their, with their students. But did those really, you know, fulfill like the core business Mm -hmm. needs? That's still a question that I don't know. I I couldn't answer. And I feel like it's easy to look at other apps and be like, well, they have real-time messaging, so we need real-time messaging. Right. Or they have photo messaging, so we need photo messaging. I, oh, that's one thing, actually, that this book XP brings up, which is treating business people as core team members of the technical team, like including them in the process continuously, not just from the get-go, not just in the planning phases, not just in the review phases, but they are involved in the weekly work of the business, setting and maintaining and managing those priorities and understanding what's being shipped. So expectations are super clear. And um, I think that helps both those things. The tension you were talking about with not knowing what the priorities are from the business side, because if we're all more involved with this thing together, and then there isn't that wall between the customer service and the programmers doing things, it's easier for customer desires or complaints to kind of leak over into the business, into the technical team. And I think on the other side, the idea of expectations and time constraints and deadlines, if the business team is continuously involved in the process of development, there isn't like, oh, wait, that's not done yet. You've been working on that six weeks because they know every week the progress and the state of that particular thing and the specific technical blockers of like why we're struggling to make it through things. Because I feel like so many times in programming, the blockers aren't technical. Like to some degree, the actual technical implementation of our work is not difficult for the most part. Like there's of course difficult problems to solve. But it really comes down to like the hard work I feel like is often in the defining the path and defining the nuances of the way forward. It's like, it's easy to be like, oh, I want to focus more on this particular business. Like I want to sell more popcorn, but it's like, how do, how does this app sell more popcorn? And how does that break down in terms of a user experience? And how does that break down in terms of like what data gets saved to the database? And it's like, oh, I just click this and it pops up and it just pops up and it just, you know, tells me that it's got a lot of uh, pizzazz. And it's just, it's really difficult to translate that into tech technical terms. And I feel like that's often what's lost. And so the idea of including this business person in the core of the development process, it just aids every single area of those three, whether it's expectations, the overall business direction, or just those definitions of features and products and and getting that shared language and communicating those things back and forth. So I really like that idea. And I'm interested to hear like how that works in practice though, because you know, business people are oftentimes getting caught up in the minutiae and it just all feels like nonsense to them. Yeah, totally. And I have a quote that I think is pretty relevant to what we're talking about now. And it's, it's this, XP assumes that you see yourself as part of a, t- a team, ideally one with clear goals and a plan of execution, end quote. And so I think one of the, I think one thing that's easy to do when you're part of a team is, is you try, is you try to segment roles based on titles so you see mm-hmm. business people and you're just like ah these are just business people like what do they really know you, you see like designers can only design engineers can only code 
and business people and salespeople can only talk to, to customers. But like, what really needs to happen is that there needs to be a clear line of communication. I think even like salespeople are, are, are super important. Whatever, whatever the term salespeople might mean to like your line of work mm-hmm. for open door specifically, that, that could be like our agents, right? Because like, you know, we have in-house agents that have to like sell people on, on homes potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're not necessarily like a salesperson selling our product, but in, in a sense, they're like, you know, for all intents and purposes of this conversation are salespeople. And they do have valuable feedback of like how our app works and how, you know, because they're out in the field and they're Mm -hmm. like constantly talking to, to, you know, to our, to our customers. And so like to ignore their feedback would be kind of short-sighted in the same way that like, you know, I think there's also a tension between engineers and designers. (laughs) And maybe I might just be speaking from, uh, no, I don't definitely can like be. like a personal level, but I think there's a common misconception that like engineers can't design, right? But I mm-hmm. think that's I think that's a bad misconception, and I've been on both sides of this. Where I was a designer for Wiz Tutor, and I would be like, "No, why why, why are you guys changing my design?" You were that designer I was annoyed with <laughs> like way back four years ago, whatever when we first met. Yeah, and um, I would, yeah, yeah. I, w- I would be like, "No, that's not what my mocks look like." And you'd be like, "Well, <laughs> users can't use this because you know they can't click on yeah. this, or like it doesn't make any sense, right?" And yeah. so, like, I think I think that everyone has valuable input on like how a product should be, mm-hmm. and I think that without like clear goals it's really easy to get into the minutia of things of like, I'm a designer, so I design. You're a business person, so you talk mm-hmm. with all the business people. You're an engineer, right. so all you do is code and make this, and you make my dreams of this mock come, like become a reality. Right. And like you have no creative or business input. Like you're just the technical guy. You're right. just going to turn the wink and like do it, co- t- turn the crank and do it, code monkey. Like spit out this mock up from the design and business people because we know what we're doing. Yeah, and I agree with you that like, if you're on a team, like everybody passes the ball to everybody and everybody contributes. And sometimes that means like, you know, I'm not a defender, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try to defend when the ball's coming toward me. Like I'm going to defend. And I think that's like, we need to all be willing to appreciate everyone's unique roles and at the same time be willing to contribute and be more open and like pass the ball and not blame each other. I've been reading this book. I just finished it actually. It was super good. It's called um, Extreme Ownership. It's a little bit like goofy business book, but it had a lot of really good points. But the basic idea is that you just take total responsibility for everything around you. And that like includes your team's failures. So like, even if it's totally not my fault, I take responsibility for any part I had in it. So like, let's say someone on the team, I set up the issue, we discuss it, set up the story points, and they just totally biff it and miss the deadline. Ultimately, like I'm responsible to deliver this to my client and it wasn't shipped. So my answer should never be like, oh, well, Greg didn't get it out the door because Greg didn't finish it. It should be like, I didn't set expectations with Greg. I didn't set him up for success. Like that's how it works. And I feel like in some ways it's tangential to our conversation of just like being in that team and making sure you take responsibility for any part. Like if a design mock-up comes through to your desk and you're supposed to implement it, but the design makes no sense, like you need to push back and educate and you need to be politically and technical and uh, relationally savvy enough to communicate that back and figure out what that is and get the stakeholders in the room and, and get it fixed and ultimately own the product and move it forward. There was this other idea that 
how XP is, I forgot the exact quote, but he was talking about extreme programming and what it is and what the point is, but it's about letting go of yourself and your own ego in the process and focusing on the product and output first. And I really like that idea. And it kind of goes back to this whole conversation about team and being willing to take responsibility for other things and sharing things. Cool. Yeah. So how would you describe extreme programming to someone who's never heard of it? I would say it's a just a set of practices and a way of thinking about programming that makes you more productive and healthy. That's what I would say in the, in the, after reading the first chapter. Okay. How would you describe it? Okay, cool. I think uh, sort of similar. I would, I would describe extreme programming to a coworker, for example, as a set of healthy practices, uh, that cultivate a healthy, uh, organization. And I almost said an engineering organization, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's yeah. more I think it's more even though it's about extreme programming mm-hmm. in particular, I think it's about cultivating a healthy organization with like I do, you know, yeah. with like marketing people, designers, engineers, product people, um like business stakeholders, like the whole shebang. I mm-hmm. think I think it's about all of that because because in an organization that has all of those pieces of the pie, engineering does make up a portion of that. And I think a lot of that um, is like giving up your ego and being mm-hmm. part of like and understanding that you're part of, you know, a larger organization that needs teamwork. It, teamwork mm-hmm. is very important. I think it's a little funny that this book is called Extreme Programming because it's not like I think the point is that like you take really basic things and you take them to to the extreme, like you do them at an insane level. So like, you know, the whole giving up your ego thing, you like extremely give up your ego. I think is I think is potentially why it's called extreme programming is because if you do all these tiny little things that you should be doing anyway and take them to the extreme, you end up with a really healthy organization. But to me, it's like almost misleading because when I hear the word extreme, I think of like crazy intense like not sleeping yeah exactly 30 hour but, work day yeah but in reality it, it it would almost be like pragmatic and obviously they're not going to call it pragmatic programming pragmatic programming <laughs> that was taken i feel like disciplined would work like disciplined programming or like i don't know there's like a certain element of like candor or honesty that's mm-hmm. like like living in what the reality of the situation is extreme is like not the word i would use to describe it at all I've got five bullet points here that wrap this first chapter. And as we kind of close out this recording, I just kind of wanted to blow through. For, and this is from Ketmek. He's like, okay, so what is extreme programming? And this is how he answers that question. It's giving up old habits, fully appreciating yourself for your total effort today, striving to do better tomorrow, consistently evaluating yourself and meeting your human needs. None of that sounds extreme to me. <laughs> I mean, all of those sound like things from like the Oprah book club to me, to some degree. It, none of those are programming related. Right. None of those are specifically to like a hacker ethos. And, and that's why I'm ex- actually excited to get into this stuff and how it relates directly to our businesses and how it directly relates to programming. But I mean, those are great five bullet points, but I never thought this book, Extreme Programming, would be so like full of Zen and ancient wisdom. Yeah. Isn't it's funny because I'm I'm reading these I'm reading these five bullet points and it's like you could have a book called Extreme Marketing or like Extreme <laughs> Designing and and they would totally apply. Like me- Absolutely. Me- meeting your human needs, striving to do better tomorrow. Like th- those are, those have nothing to do with- I feel with- like you could title this book, How to Be Human. Yeah. <laughs> like, be a better person. <laughs> it's so interesting. But I guess like it kind of goes back to the idea of the constraint in our system is the humanity. 
And so freeing Mm -hmm. up that constraint of our humanity and like embracing the humanity side of programming is gonna like get everything else more productive. Anyway, I'm really excited to get into these future chapters. Do we have any picks for today? Yes, I have one. And it's a book that I started reading last night. It's called Elegant Puzzle. And for two reasons. One, the cover is amazing and the, the cover font- is so gorgeous. And the fonts inside and the graphics and the graphs are fucking kick ass. Wow. But it's a book about engineering management, which is kind of funny because I'm like nowhere near being an engineering manager. But I was talking to my boss in my last one on one about this book. And it's really interesting because it's a book about how to manage engineering teams. And as an individual contributor, it's, it's, re- it's a really interesting read. Um, to sort of know what like the ideal like what the ideal environment is for a team that is like ran well by an engineering manager Mm. um so it's like how to be a good engineering manager i don't know i always think it's interesting to read books from like for for like managers even though i'm not one because it gives me it gives you a different perspective on things of like putting yourself into your manager's shoes and I think there's some value. So there, I think there's some value in that. There's something to say about. Um, there's something to say about that. Don't know what it is to say, but I I I certainly find them interesting. <laughs> wow, this book looks really good. Do you feel like it would be good for someone who runs a very small team like me? Oh, totally, hundred okay. percent. I would it right now. I would for sure recommend it, and it looks really cool. So so there's that. There's. Yeah, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but it's 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 really it's really interesting. There's like. A formula to it almost of like ideally you want to have a team of like six to eight engineers anything less than like three engineers is not a team is not necessarily a team <laughs> hmm. interesting cool i'm excited to check that out and maybe as we both get into it we'll have more thoughts to share on the podcast on future episodes cool my pick for the week is a little bit odd but i was actually talking i was at the co-working space yesterday talking to people just about like their different like ways they get something done. And it's interesting because I mentioned a few weeks ago to someone the idea of the bullet journal system or getting things done system. And they'd never like played with any of these. And there was someone who just like had piles of post-it notes and kind of notes in their phones and didn't like have a system. And that this person was like, oh my gosh, like everything's so much different, like having a productivity system. Like I know like what needs to be done and when it needs to get done. And like my pick in general is... If you are one of these people that doesn't really have kind of a frame of mind or a framework in all the stuff you have to get done in your life, whether it's work or professional or whether it's personal or professional, what those things are, like I would highly encourage you to either pick up a book or just watch a couple YouTube videos on different productivity methods. So whether it's getting things done or GTD, which is kind of the ethos that I most adapt, bullet journaling, which I've got a lot of, um, it's kind of like a version of getting things done, but I've gotten a lot of productivity and help from bullet journaling, the action method or Seinfeld's chain. Like there's all these different ways of getting things done. And I would really encourage you to like, just check a couple out, have an open mind for a second. I get it that like, I'm a super nerd engineer type guy and I can kind of get too into these systems. But just don't stick with it too dogmatically and like find the couple tips and tricks that help you, whether that's just having an inbox and reviewing your inbox or what those few things are. And I feel like it'll be so much better for your life and like your stress level comes down. And like, I feel like weekly, I think, oh God, I'm so glad I found getting things done. Like I wouldn't survive unless I had some of these practices that help me stay on top of things. And it's not even that I'm extremely perfect with my getting things done ethos, but it's that I have this good kind of 
toolbox of mental models and ways to approach things that is consistent and good. And like, even if you're somebody who's kind of free spirit and like, ah, fuck it, I'll figure it out. It'll get done when it gets done. Like, I still encourage you to just take a look, just open your mind for a second and check them out. So things to Google and check out is GTD, getting things done, bullet journal, action method, or Seinfeld's chain. Like those are the few that I got out of. But if you just Google like productivity methods, there's tons out there and just find one that works for you because I get a ton of value out of having one. Cool. I'm going to Google GTD as soon as we, as soon as nice. we stop you recording should. this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Or YouTube. They'll just be like a five minute explainer and you can get so much out of that. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I'm really excited to be jumping through extreme programming by Kent Beck and we'll see you on future episode. Thanks so much for listening. Peace. Thank you.